0: Okay, so we're, we're just going to do just a, a quick overview of this next section before we go to our lunch break. Um, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So I'm going to read it, and we're going to do our remember the big picture exercise again, right? So we've, we've always been asking, how does this text relate to the, the previous pericope, right? And how does it relate to chapter 1, verse 10? So I'm going to read it, and then I want you to talk in your groups about that question. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints, with fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, go ahead and talk about that in your groups. How does it relate to the previous pericope? And how does it relate to chapter 1, verse 10? How, yeah, so pericope, just that, that little heading you see in your Bible, that's, that, that's a pericope. So 2, 1 through 10 is a pericope. So like, 1, 3 through 14 is a pericope also, right? That's more than one paragraph, but it's one pericope. Yeah, so, okay, what do you guys think? Let's talk about how it relates, especially to the previous pericope, but I, I think we could even say to other things that have come before, but what, what conclusions did you make there? Yeah, A.B. Yeah, good. And on the second one the connection is he's he's beseeching them to to realize that they uh unity among themselves. Yeah. In light of the union that Christ has done with the Father. Good, yeah. If we're all yeah. united to Christ, then we should be united to one another. <laughs> good. I love that. That's a great that's a great way to say it. What else? Yeah, Faiso. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. Uh-huh. The uh so huh. Uh huh. Yeah, there's one identity. Now I like what you're saying, but I would say it the opposite way. Okay, so what you said is, because we're united with God, we should be united with one another. But I think I think and I challenge you. Like, think about this. Like, and how, especially in verse sixteen. Because we're united to one another, we're united to God. I think that's how Paul says it in 2.16. That vertical reconciliation happens by means or, sorry, a yeah, vertical reconciliation happens by means of horizontal reconciliation. God reconciles a body to himself. But I think you're right, that within the theme of the united people of God, this is how the united people of God happens. The united people of God happens as Christ breaks down the divine wall of hostility and makes Jew and Gentile one, right? If there's, only, if there's only one God, there can only be one people of God. If there's only one plan of God, there can only be one people of God. And that's what Paul is arguing here. Yeah, excellent, yeah. This is how God is uniting all things in heaven and earth. Because if he's going to unite all things in heaven and earth, he has to unite Jews and Gentiles, right? That's part of, that's the biggest, in the first century world, for the Jewish people, that was the biggest division, was the division between Jews and Gentiles. And if God's going to unite all things in heaven and on earth, then he has to unite Jews and Gentiles. They have to be part of the same plan of God. Good. And we've already mentioned cosmic versus covenantal rescue. right? Also, if we think about Ezekiel 37, this is the second half of Ezekiel 37. It naturally flows from the previous section. Let's think also about Christ's enthronement. Okay, Christ's enthronement. Have any of you finished your... Oh, Brian finished his reader, actually. I found out last night. Brian Brian already got his reader done for this week. That was pretty. I was pretty surprised to see that. But has anyone else finished their reader? Or has anyone else read N.T. Wright's article on the temple? Anyway, yeah. So who built temples in ancient worlds? Kings. Kings built temples, right? And your nation was put to shame if you didn't have a temple, because temples were, heaven, temples were heaven and earth united. It's where the God met with his people. And if you didn't have a temple, then your God couldn't meet with you. So it's the responsibility of kings to build temples. So that's why David says, David is Israel's first king, says, I'm going to build a temple for God, because kings in the ancient world built temples. So then it's, it's fascinating then to me that we see the same thing happening here. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant at the end of chapter 1. Then we go into what that means for us. And then here he builds the temple. It's very similar to the David story then, right? When David is enthroned, he then desires to build the temple. He finds that he can't, but his son will. And that's what happens here. His son builds the temple. So now that Jesus has been enthroned in king, he builds the temple so that God's people can enter into God's presence and God can live with his people. That's what's happening. And then, if we think about chapter 1, verse 10, the temple is where heaven and earth overlapped in the ancient world. So that if you went into the temple, it wasn't like you were in heaven, you were in heaven. So we're talking about heaven and earth overlapping. We're talking about uniting all things in heaven all things on earth. This is the height of Paul's theological argument, is the building of this cosmic temple. And it's a very significant it's very significant that Paul would say this that king Jesus has built a temple because there's still a there's still a Herod's temple standing at this time right the Jews can still go to Herod's temple so if he says yes there's a physical temple built but but Jesus has built a new temple what's he what's he implying there why would you build if, you already, if you're in the ancient world and you already have a perfectly good temple, why would you build another temple? Why would you build a second temple? Yeah, yeah. Because the old one is obsolete. The old temple is obsolete. The old temple is not where God meets with his people anymore. The place where God meets with his people, the place where heaven and earth overlap, is now in the church. Us. Us. We are that temple. I mean, it's it's very weighted language. We could say maybe charged language when Paul says this. He he is not a he's not just kind of saying, "Hey, this is a cool biblical theological connection." He's he has the implications he's making for the building of this temple is that the Jewish way of coming to God is obsolete. Circumcision is obsolete. Sabbaths are obsolete. Washing rituals are obsolete. You now enter into God's temple through Jesus. Sacrifices are obsolete. The Ark of the Covenant is obsolete. Jesus is the way you enter into the presence of God. And the temple is built out of both Jewish people and Gentile people. It's it's not a Jewish temple, is what that means. It's a Jew-Gentile church temple, and I think we could even say it's a new creation kingdom temple. Because the old creation is passing away, the new creation has dawned, and the new creation king has already begun building his temple. Made out of people. Not made out of stones, gold and silver and wood, things like that. This is universal, cosmic reconciliation. And part part of what God is doing to reconcile, reconcile the cosmos to himself is reconciling people from different ethnicities to one another. So that they all have one way of accessing God through Christ. Any questions on that? Okay. One, we'll do one idea, and then we'll break for lunch. I want to look at the word "remember." Remember, Paul. It's the first command in Ephesians, right? The very first command is to remember, and Paul calls these Ephesians to remember who they once were. Do you ever think about who you were before you became a Christian? You ever think about that sometimes? And when you do think about it, how does it make you feel? Guilty? Like, oh, I wish it hadn't have gone like that. I wish I hadn't have done that. Paul Paul also has a category for remembering our salvation, remembering who we were. But he does it for the purpose of praising God, not for the purpose of self-condemnation. I do think it's good to remember who we were before we became Christians, but it's not good to remember who we were before we became Christians for the purpose of self-condemnation or with the result of self-condemnation but instead for the purpose of knowing to a greater degree what God has saved us from, and for the purpose of receiving afresh the realities of the graciousness and kindness of God. Remember, look at uh, Exodus 13.3. Israel was also called to remember, weren't they? Remember what God had done. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Israel was also commanded, this command to remember what it was like in slavery, what God did. It's not, it's not a new covenant age church command. It's a, it's a people of God command across the ages. But Israel's problem is that they failed to remember. And we see this immediately as soon as they go into the wilderness. They talk about how the land of Egypt was a wonderful place. The work wasn't that bad. Like, we should have stayed there. They forgot very, very quickly. And oh, that that we would not forget the story of what God has done to rescue a people out of trespasses and sins, out of covenant and exile and bring us to himself. Would that we would remember it over and over and over again, not for the purpose of self-condemnation, but for the purpose of remembering the God who saved us. Will we tell it to our children and our children's children? Okay, so the first command in Ephesians is to do what? Remember, right? Which is significant because Israel failed to remember. And because Israel failed to remember, they complained, and uh, they didn't enter the promised land. And then subsequent generations were exiled because they failed to remember. Let that out be said of us, my friends. May we remember and pass on from one generation to the next what God has done for us in Christ. <clears throat> and what, what are we remembering? We're remembering that we, <clears throat> that at one time were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, f- circumcision isn't as big a deal today as it was in the first century, but that is what Paul focuses on. When he talks about the Jew-Gentile distinction, he focuses on circumcision. It was the, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, right? With circumcision. It, it was a sign that you were in relationship with the God who made heaven and earth, that he had covenanted with you. It was the external marker of the people of God. That's what it was. In our, our, our biblical theology class spent a long time talking about the covenant signs and the significance of the covenant. So I won't go into much detail there. But it's interesting what Paul says about the circumcision. He calls it the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. <coughs> Made in the flesh by hands. I think he has two Old Testament ideas in mind when he says this. What, what is that? If you think about the Old Testament, the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, what comes to mind? What's Paul referring to? What's that? Deuteronomy 30. Exactly. Deuteronomy 30, 4 through 8. I mean, I'm sure you guys. I've referenced this so many times that I think you guys are going to have Deuteronomy 30. Uh, etched into your brains. If, it is, it, if your outcasts are in the uttermost, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he will take you. Of course, that's, that's metaphorical language, right? They're not actually going to be exiled all the way to heaven. He's just saying, like, no matter where you are, I'm going to bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. Yeah. So, the covenant sign was intended to point beyond itself. It wasn't supposed to be an ends in itself. The problem was, they made it an identity marker. So that I, they forgot that circumcision was intended to point you towards the need for heart circumcision. For the need for you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it became a, a badge of honor, and a pride marker, right? I am circumcised. Meaning I have a relationship with God that's special and you don't. Which naturally flows into what Paul uses here. called the uncircumcision. My ESV has the quote marks around it, which I think is right. He's addressing, this is a racial slur. That's what he's addressing. He's addressing a racial slur. There's us, and there's all the uncircumcised. But we, ethnically, as a people, as a race, we are special. And, and, and we are special because we are the circumcised people. We're not like all those Gentile dogs. It's also a racial slur. When Paul talks in Philippians 3, he's using a racial slur once again. Like, this is something that strikes at the heart of what Paul is getting at. That's the animosity between Jews and Gentiles. But I think he's not, he doesn't only have Deuteronomy 30 in mind. Certainly he does. Certainly he does. Because the problem was the Jews forgot to look towards what the sign pointed them towards, which was their need for heart circumcision. And they made circumcision, an ends in and of itself. Which, everything I'm describing sounds like a specific biblical category. that I think Paul is also alluding to here. That's the category of idolatry idolatry. Look at, uh, there's a lot of examples of this, but when the Bible speaks about foreign gods as opposed to Yahweh, they always describes them as the gods made by human hands. Look at uh, Psalm 115.4. This is just one example. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. I think Paul is likely alluding to not, not only the idea of the heart circumcision, but also the idea that, that circumcision had become idolatrous. Because it failed to point them towards the God that, that had entered into covenant with them and desired that they would love him from the heart. So the, the idolatry, of the, I, think, I think Paul is saying there's the idolatry of the covenant sign is what we see here. The idolatry of the covenant sign. The intent of circumcision was salvation by grace alone. You must love the Lord, but instead it became us versus you. So by the time of Paul, um, Jewish people became, became presumptuous about their standing with God, right? They became presumptuous about the verdict on Judgment Day. Because I am circumcised, I am in the right with God. I'm part of the people of God. I'm part of the family with God. And therefore, I will be made right with God on the last day. And this is what the Judaizers are teaching in Galatians, right? Paul found pride in his circumcision, saying that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Not, not only was he one of the circumcised people, but it was done on, in the correct timing, like according to the law of God. Like, if there's anyone who's accepted before God, it's me. How do I know? Because I have the covenant sign. I'm part of the people. And it began to indicate a sense of superiority, right? I'm superior to you, both religiously and ethnically. Both religiously and ethnically, I'm superior to you because I have the covenant sign. And this is part of a larger Jew and Gentile hostility also. So do you remember what happened? Um, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, what he did in 168 BC? Probably, probably in fulfillment to the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. What did he do? Yes, Sigour, do you remember? He, he, a, he, he, a sacrifice. he sacrificed a pig in the middle of the temple. An unclean animal. Like of all, and this is a temple that already the people are feeling less than thrilled about. And now he he defiles it with the blood of an unclean animal, and he put up a a, a statue to Zeus in the temple. This is 150 years before Jesus. You know, within 200 years of Paul writing this letter, but worse than that. Josephus records that at the Greek games Jews would try to hide their circumcision because they played naked, right? So you knew this is a Jewish person, this is a Gentile person. They would try to hide it with surgery. To try to hide the fact that they were Jewish because they knew they would be mocked. Josephus also records in the third century in the the exile to Egypt that the Jews refused to live in the same communities as Gentiles. They refused to do it. So th- this background material really informs the hostility that you feel between Jews and Gentiles at this time. And think, think about how radical it was then for Peter in Acts 10 and 11. Peter, even after, even after hearing about Gentile conversion and witnessing it, has to have the vision of the sheet of the unclean animals, right? He has to have that vision for him to believe that Gentiles are part of the covenant community because of the hostility that really did exist between Jews and Gentiles. That's that's all encapsulated with the phrase, you uncircumcised. Which goes on, I mean, we see that in Samuel also, right? That was what they called Goliath, was this uncircumcised Philistine. This has centuries, this has thousands of years behind it. This hostility between these ethnic groups. So, <laughs> the idea that Jews and Gentiles would be together, the single people of God, and the Gentiles would inherit all the offspring, or uh, are the offspring of Abraham, they inherit all the blessings, is a radically countercultural idea. And to say that Jews and Gentiles, who once shared intense ethnic hostility because of these especially because of these ceremonial laws um, it, w- it was and this is why Paul spent so much time talking about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles so who who were these who were these Gentiles look at verse 12 there's five descriptions of them what are the, what are the descriptions of these Gentiles in their former lives go ahead and say them out to me Yeah, they were separated from Christ. That's the first one. Let's talk about that. They did not have the promise of the Messiah. They, they might not even have heard the word Messiah, the anointed one. They might not have even known about it. They didn't have Genesis 3.15 or Genesis 12.15 and 17. They didn't have Second Samuel 7. They didn't have the promise of the prophet like Moses in uh, Deuteronomy 16, I think, or 18. <clears throat> they didn't have any of this. They didn't have the Old Testament types which pointed them to Jesus. They had none of it at all. What's the second one? They were not citizens of Israel. and This, this goes beyond covenant. I mean, this is all covenantal rescue, we said, right? Paul's doing the same thing he was doing at the beginning of chapter 2 where he's saying you were dead in your sins, and then listing all of the implications of that. Paul's doing the same thing here. You were cut off from the promise of the Messiah. You were not part of the Exodus 19 community, the kingdom of priests community, the special chosen nation community. You didn't have the civic rights that belonged to being a member of Israel. God, when God chose to move forth his redemptive plan in the world, he chose a specific ethnicity, a specific group, They were his holy nation, his royal people, and his his people for his own possession, right? And this meant they didn't experience contact with God through the temple. They were excluded from that, which gets to the third one. What's the third one? Strangers to the covenants of the promise. Foreigners to the covenants of the promise. They were not only foreigners in regards to ethnically being outside of the nation of Israel, they did not know about or have access to these covenants of the promise. And we spent a long time talking about the covenants of the promise. So I'm not going to go into extensive detail here, but all that to be said, it is one promise with multiple covenants, multiple expressions of the one covenant promise of God to redeem his people. The result of being excluded from the citizenship of Israel is you don't have access to the covenants. You don't have the promises. You don't have Jesus. You're not part of the people where God dwells there. And so the next two make sense. You're without hope and you're without God. You're without hope. You were hopeless. You do not have hope in the coming Messiah. You do not have hope in the day when God would make all things right. There was no hope in the future resurrection. There was no hope. Like the, Gentile, the Jews, Jewish people have. There's no hope in the idea of one day all things may, may be made right again through the God who redeemed us. There's no hope of the new covenant. And you're without God. It doesn't mean they were they were atheists. like They didn't believe in any God. But it means that they were without the true God of Israel. Right? This is prob- probably, probably Paul is being a little coy here also because uh, Jews were accused, or Christians were, being, were accused of being atheists in the, in the first, first and second century because they only believed in one God instead of the plurality of gods that the Greco Roman world believed in. But you were the ones without, who were without God, not these Jewish people. Now they've come to become monotheists and now they, now they see that they were without God. I mean, it's hopeless, right? Covenantally, they were excluded. And if that's the case, there's no hope for them to have access to God or have hope in the world. And that gets to the next section. So Paul does the same thing that he did in 2, 1 through 10, and he says, but God, right? Before he said, but now, or before he said, but God, now he says, but now. There's a complete reversal of the former state. The former state was excluded. Now God is going to act to reverse all of that. And I would argue that in the same way that 2, 1 through 10, there's a complete reversal of all of the things that made you dead in trespasses and sins, now there's a complete reversal which made you foreigners to the covenant and not members of Israel. Paul, Paul's whole point here is that you have become the new Israel. You, have now, you now have access to God. You are no longer strangers to the covenants. You now are fully included citizens and covenant members. So, he starts with being brought near, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What does he mean by far off and near? I want you to turn to Isaiah 57, 19. So I think Paul is alluding to, or quoting this verse, when he says, Peace, peace to the far and the near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Okay. The far and the near, there's peace, peace, because it says later that Christ preached peace to those who are far off and those who are near. But I I want you to look at the whole passage with the person next to you and ask, what's the context of the peace, peace? And who are the far and who are the near? In this text, go ahead and look at it and try to figure that out. <laughs> okay, so what's the context? What's Isaiah talking about? He's talking about two people, two groups of people. Uh huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're go- there's a group of people who are going to be in God's presence. Good. Now, who are the far off and who are the near, though, in Isaiah? Or what is this describing? You think you think Isaiah is talking about Gentiles and Jews? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure Isaiah is talking about Gentiles and Jews. Because look, look at verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. What does that sound like? Exile. Exile. That, I mean, think about Isaiah 40. Right? It's, it's almost comfort, comfort my people. Sounds a lot like peace, peace, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her. Her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She is received from the Lord's hand, double for her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the desert highways for our God. Right? I think, I think what's being described here is the return from exile. So if that's the case, who are the people who are far off and who are the people who are near? Those who are and those who are in the land. Yeah, I think so. I think he's exactly right. He's describing the people who are far off from the land and the people who are in the land. I think that's who he's describing. So then when Paul takes this same idea, this same verse... And he applies it. He doesn't apply it to Jewish people in exile and Jewish people in the land. He applies it to Gentiles and Jews. The far off has been transformed not to Jewish people in exile, but instead to Gentile people who are outside the covenant. So the, the, the reinterpretation I think that Paul does of Isaiah to say that you all were in exile, and now you have been brought near, it changes the idea. Actually, let's look at one more text. Look at uh, the, the, right before that, the context in Isaiah 56. I think Paul's not doing, Paul is using Isaiah to kind of reinterpret Isaiah, because at the end of the previous chapter, or in the previous chapter anyway, There's promises for Gentiles coming in to God's people. The foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servant. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted in my altar. For the house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. But to get in, you have to keep the Sabbaths. You have to do the sacrifices. You have to do all these ceremonial things, right? This is, this is describing proselytes. People who became Jewish, who were not formerly Jewish. So like Rahab is an example of that, right? Um, Uriah, the Hittite, is an example of that. People who were not Jewish, who became Jewish, for the purpose of knowing God. But when, uh, when... Paul applies this text to a New covenant context. he does not apply it to say that these are Gentiles who have come to know God by becoming Jewish. these are Gentiles who have come to God in Christ, superseding all of these old covenant ceremonial laws. so there's a change is the change is that he applies it not just to Gentiles who are far off and Jews who are near. But he applies it to Gentiles and not proselytes. There's uncircumcised Gentiles. Gentiles who have not in any way attempted to make themselves Jewish. The result is that these people become Israelites, if you're a proselyte, right? But Jews and Gentiles become the new humanity in Ephesians. And coming near in Isaiah is transformed to actually living in the presence of God in the new creation temple, in the new creation kingdom temple. And then that's how we get to how we get brought near in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.14, we see how we've been brought near. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Okay. This is a very hard text, and we've looked at it a few times before, right? But I want to ask you four questions from this text. Four questions, and you're going to have to talk about it. Now, I've taught taught this class before, and I've when I, some, one time when I taught it, I got 16 different answers to these four questions. But the way, the way you answer these four questions will determine what you think this text means. If you, if you can answer these four questions, I think that interpreting this text becomes much, much, much simpler. Okay. I'm going to give you these four questions. Actually, let me just go to them here. 58. Okay, so here's the four questions I want you to answer for your group. Number one, what is the dividing wall? Number two, who created the dividing wall? Okay, so what is the dividing wall? Who created the dividing wall? Number three, was the dividing wall intended to bring hostility? Or did it just bring hostility accidentally or unintentionally? And number four, what did Jesus set aside? Okay. So what is the dividing wall? Who created the dividing wall? Was the dividing wall intended to bring hostility? And what did Jesus set aside? Okay, talk about those four in your group. Okay, who's answered all four questions? Has anyone answered all four questions yet? You guys have, you guys have, you, you guys. Have you guys answered all four questions? Still working on it? Okay. So we're going to have some fun. I want to hear what you guys think, okay? So let's do, let's do group one. James and Muhammad. What's the dividing wall? The dividing wall is the, ser- the laws commanding Jews and Jews to be separated. Okay. So who created the dividing wall? God. Did, did God intend that the dividing wall would bring hostility? No. Okay. And what did Jesus set aside? The dividing law. Well, yeah, of course, but, okay, you're saying the ceremonial. law is commanded that they be the separated. Laws, the ceremonial laws. Okay. Ceremonial laws. Did, uh, I don't know if that's the best way of summing up. Sure. All those laws be separated. A, B, and Mikey, do you agree? I, uh, Let's start with the first question. What's the dividing law? The, the law? The law? The ceremonial law. I think it's sin. Because of the law. Sin? The dividing wall is sin. Yeah. Okay. Who created the dividing wall? What? And we can, we, can we, can about about th- we can say there's two so answers. We can say there's two. We have two groups. We have two groups. Okay, so we have group 2A and we have group 2B. Okay. Because there's divisions in this group, right? There, there is hostility in this group created by, not by me, well, I guess you could say it was created by me, but not intentionally, right? Exactly, point. Okay, so I'm going to solve this by just creating two groups in the place of one. Exactly. Okay, so, so uh, AB A, B is group 2A. So AB says the dividing wall is sin. Who created the dividing wall? The, law is, uh, the dividing wall is the law, which is created by sin. The law. Okay, so the law created the, the law, law is the dividing wall, and sin created the law. Okay. And was the dividing wall intended to bring hostility? I'm just writing down what you're, is that what you're saying? Yeah, if that's what you're saying, I'm just asking, I'm just clarifying to make sure I know what you're saying. I can't hear yeah, you, I'm sorry. I'm just asking, like, this is what you're, like, I'm just writing down what you're saying, that's all. Okay, so was the dividing wall intended to bring hostility? Yes. Yes, okay. And what did Jesus set aside? Sin. Okay. Mikey, Group Two B. Okay. What's that? Ceremonial laws. Okay. And who created the dividing wall? Did God intend for the dividing wall to bring hostility? No. So you're the same as Group One. Yeah, that's that's fine. We got we got Group Two. So we got group one plus Mikey. Group one plus Mikey, right? Okay. Group three is going to be Brian and Faisal. Do you agree with one of these groups or, or no? Or do you have your own answers? Yeah, what is the dividing wall? Well, Of course, yeah, that's what it says. But, like, what does it mean? Like, tell me what that means. The ceremonial law. Okay. Who created the dividing wall? Okay. Was it intended to bring hostility? No. Okay. And what did Jesus set aside? So he set aside the enmity. The enmity. Okay. So he did not set aside He did not set aside the ceremonial laws. He set aside the enmity that the ceremonial laws brought. Okay. Group 4. Uh, Sammy and Yabsiga. Yep, do, do we have unity in this group? Is there, is there one answer or no? Or do you agree with another group? You don't agree. You don't agree with each other. You guys don't agree with each other but you both agree with this group. Okay. Sammy, Okay, so I'm going to say group one plus Mikey plus Sammy. Okay, so group four is Yabsaga by himself. Yabsaga. The law. The whole thing? Yeah. Every, okay. Sounds good. And then, no, no, the law is, the whole law That's what I'm asking. Like, we're on dividing into types of law, like other groups have done. Okay, and who created the dividing wall? God. Okay. I'm just asking my friend. You know what? There's no, Okay. <laughs> So, did God intend the law to bring hostility between Jews and Gentiles? No. No. Okay, and what did Jesus set aside? The law. Okay. Group five, do you guys both agree or no? Do you guys both agree? Do you agree with one another? You agree with one another. That's great. And are your answers the same as another group? We have a no, we have a, we have a fifth possibility. Okay. The whole the whole law. Okay. So not the whole ceremonial law. The so is it the is it the whole law or is it just circumcision? Okay. 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 I'm not going to get another answer is what I'm hearing. I'm just going to write down exactly what you say. The law, specifically circumcision. Okay. Who created the dividing wall? Gone. Was it intended to bring hostility? No. And what did Jesus set aside? Okay. So not, So the difference, I just want to clarify the difference here. So you're saying the whole law, moral, ceremonial, civil, is the dividing wall of hostility? Not, not the moral. Not the moral. The ceremonial and the civil laws. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a ceremonial law, right? I'm aware that it's specifically servicing. <laughs> there's, there's no need to clarify further. <laughs> okay. Now, here, here's an answer that I normally get. Here's an answer that I normally get that no one said. Okay, uh, and I'd be interested in hearing what you think about this. What is the dividing wall? Jewish misunderstanding of the law. So, was who created the law? Would be the Jewish people because they misunderstood the law. Was it intended to bring hostility? Yes. God did not intend to bring hostility with the laws. The Jewish people did. As they misinterpreted it. Okay? And what did Jesus set aside? Now, this will go back and forth. Maybe the laws themselves or the misinterpretation of the laws. What do you think about that? Mis- Jewish misinterpretation of the laws is what's being addressed here, is what some people think. So they don't think the laws themselves are being addressed, the laws themselves are being set aside, and the laws themselves bring hostility, but instead, Jewish misinterpretation of the intent of those laws. Is that possible? Okay, everyone says no. Why? Why is that not possible? Sammy? Yeah. Yeah, it's possible. Does anyone think the Jewish misinterpretation is, a, is possible? That's what it is? Yeah. Yes, yes, so maybe there was the Jewish misinterpretation as the wall of hostility, but it's the law itself that's set aside because there was misinterpretation. Is that what you're saying? Okay, you're just saying all of it's impossible. Okay. Right. Mike, or uh, A B, it looks like you want to say something. Mhm. So you know, yeah. As you are my holy people. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sin is what like within them. Yep. I mean, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sin yeah. within them. Yeah. That makes sense. Any other ideas about that? Yeah, James. I think too, it says that he is broken down in his flesh. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, 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 I think so. So I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged that I think you guys, usually we spend a lot longer on this topic when I teach this class. And usually there's far more confusion. But you guys are, I think you guys are spot on for the most part with with what you think this text means. Uh, I'm going to go through through my answers here. So what is the dividing wall? Or I guess there's one more question we have to ask. Who's group two? Who was group two? Mikey by himself? That's right. Oh, A.B. Okay. Okay, no, no, no. That makes sense then. That makes sense. Okay. So what is the dividing wall? What is the dividing wall? I think, well, there was literally the dividing wall was an actual wall in the temple that separated Jews from Gentiles, right? So there was a Gentile court and a Jewish court, right? And if you were a Gentile, you didn't have access to the Jewish court. You only had access to the Gentile court. You could not be in the presence of God to the degree that Jewish people were. This is a physical dividing wall, but it took on a metaphor also. Actually, Josephus records that there was a sign over the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles that said, Gentiles cannot enter under penalty of death. I mean, if we want to talk about hostility, that's it. The, so the metaphor, the metaphor, the metaphorical uh, dividing wall then uh, is the, the true division that existed between Jews and Gentiles, I think, because of ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws which divided Jews from Gentiles. And I think, I think that you can see that in the text here. Well, everything that we're talking about is ceremonial in nature, right? Um which this whole text begins with circumcision, right? And the, the far away and the near because of circumcision, and it ends with the temple. And then that's what makes it significant that it was in his flesh that Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility, right? It was through him and not through circumcision. Thanks, Caleb. What's that? So who who created the dividing wall? I think in one sense, God. In one sense, God created the dividing wall because he's the one who instituted these ceremonial laws. But I think in another sense, we we could say the Jews who prided themselves in their ethnicity created the dividing wall. Um, Especially because of circumcision laws and feeling superior ethnically because of them. So was the dividing wall intended to bring hostility? I think no. The dividing wall was not intended to bring hostility. It was intended to convince the Jewish people their salvation by grace alone. That was the purpose of circumcision. That was the purpose of the Sabbaths. That was was the purpose of of all of the ceremonial laws, was to remind them that they are God's special people. But no, no, also because... Uh, it was intended to make a clear distinction between who were God's people and who weren't. And just because there's an external marker for who God's people are and who God's people are not does not mean that um, it was intended to bring hostility. And uh, so what did Jesus set aside then? What did Jesus set aside? I think he set aside the ceremonial laws. I that's what it's saying. Jesus set aside the ceremonial laws to show that the intent of those laws was always Jesus. The intent of the laws was always to point beyond themselves to the reality who is Christ. Love and unity was the intent of the law, not division. And covenant inclusion by grace was the intent of the ceremonial laws.